Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to episode five of Ghouls in the House. I am Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And today we are bringing you a pair of films that are, in fact, the same film, but in different languages. First is a Japanese horror film that has become a modern classic in its own right, and many people credit as starting a wave of what is known as J-horror that either resulted in lots of Western language remakes or releases over here of other Japanese horror films, and it's Ring, sometimes referred to as Ringu, but Ring pretty much in the straight translation from 1998, and we'll talk a lot more about the origin of that film. And the second film is The Ring, which is the remake of Ring that was done in English in 2002 and is also one of the greenest movies I've ever seen. <laughs> we thought that designation would go to the Fog remake. But now we know where they were getting it from. Exactly. Right from The Ring. <laughs> uh, so two rings. But not to be confused with Rings, one of the sequels that came many years later, or Ring 2. Or another two that's not a look, we're just we're gonna have to go through all this. It's gonna take some time, <laughs> but we'll get through it together. So the important thing is it's two movies. It also occurs to me, by the way, despite the fact that our logo has the little ghoul, which if you didn't notice, that's what the logo is supposed to be. It's a little stylized little ghost there. And the ghouls in the house thing, of course, is a just an homage to our favorite movie and a great way to get things started. But it also occurs to me that so far, another thing I didn't know we were necessarily going to do, so we'll probably also want to break out of it uh, soon, is except for one episode, every single episode we've done has been about uh, ghosts and hauntings. I think maybe it's because when we had started doing episodes of Doctor of the Dead together, um, the previous podcast, we focused so closely on zombie movies. Well, that was, yeah, because that's what just that was by nature. for. Yeah. So there are so many films that we love that are zombie movies, and then we kind of branched into slashers a little bit there at the end. Yeah. And we covered those, so we were trying to think, let's start by covering some things we haven't covered. And I guess really there was a gap in ghost stories. It's been a nice little run so far in that it seems to fit with what the show is like. But also, I figure we want to change it up and make sure people understand we're not just going to be doing ghosts all the time. Although, the giant ants weren't ghosts. Can you imagine <laughs> what it would have been like if they killed the ants and then ghost ants came back? That were the were same size. Same size, but, but, but ghost ants. How do you even stop a ghost I ant? I now have a great idea for a follow-up to them. <laughs> Nobody steal it. It's called Them Again. <laughs> and uh, they're ghost ants. Here is a fear-frenzied moment of suspense as mankind totters before a thing that multiplies faster than it can be killed. Here is a desperate plunge into the black depths of the earth where human courage... Anyway, that's not what this episode is about. This it episode is, is uh, about a very soggy-haired girl and her adventures. I'm underselling it. <laughs> Anyway, I saw let's let's go through another aspect of this, which we've repeated also as a pattern at least once or twice before already, which is that one of us saw one of these once and the other one never and mm -hmm. swap it. And the same thing happened here. I saw the Ring remake in 2002 when it came out in theaters. I had never seen the original. I mean, I knew there was a remake. I, I wasn't blind to that, but I just I went to see that one and Maybe apart from clips, I've only ever seen it the once. And I've 
had only ever seen the original ring, um, which some of my college roommates and I rented on home video right before the 2002 ring hit theaters because... Did you rent it on tape? We did. Oh, that's awesome. We did. We rented it from Blockbuster, RIP Blockbuster, Mm. always in our hearts. And uh, we decided we wanted to watch it and be able to have seen it before the English remake hit the theaters, which we weren't that interested in seeing. Worth noting, too, that myself and like half of my roommates were all Asian studies majors okay. or minors. I was a minor. But they I mean, were... that means this, you, you were steeped in a lot of things that may have made it easier to really grab onto some yeah, of the thematic and other for sure yeah um okay. so we kind of felt like we wanted to see it and it was a movie that was i mean this is at a time when it was a lot harder to come by sure foreign language films but by virtue of the remake hitting theaters the japanese original became more available for home video rental you know that's not also necessarily a common thing is you're kind of lucky and that's a good thing but very often what happens when a western studio remakes a movie is they try damn hard to kill any distribution of the original one great example that that really annoyed me at the time was rec record Mm. you couldn't get the original anywhere in any release here because quarantine was coming out and they didn't want any uh, conflict with it so, maybe, so that's a good maybe thing. it wasn't that. I don't know. I also went to college in a town that had a naval air station. So there were, I guess, a lot of people internationally minded. Those in Navy that guys love J Har. They too. love J Har. Um, <laughs> but people, I guess, who would have had at least more international experience, perhaps, than other smaller towns. And. I don't know. The blockbuster in town always had really good selection of things. I also have to point out, and just a little sidestep back to my uh, days really getting started working on the zombie stuff. I also understand about tracking it down. I've always had a sort of side fascination with wanting to get to know more of and see more Japanese horror, but have only ever been able to do it in small doses because... I feel so disadvantaged in that I don't feel I'm aware enough of a lot of the cultural and societal things that factor into the way they tell stories. And I mean, you could do research now better than ever. You can look up a lot of things, which we've done for this too. But I always felt watching that I'm losing so much in the translation because I don't understand you know, where their derivation of fear and their cultural references are coming from. And so, for instance, when we were working on Zombie Mania way back when, I really wanted us to make sure we covered a lot of Japanese, which weren't easy to come by. Mm-hmm. Again, they were hard to get. Like a Japanese, lot easier now, actually. Yeah, like Japanese zombie movies like Stacy and Wild Zero and, and Versus was my favorite. But all through that, I still felt like I'm missing something. I'm not getting some kind of benefit that I would get if I'd studied more about it or if I were more aware of it. And I still feel a little of that when we sat down to watch Ring, which I enjoyed a lot. But I still felt like I would have enjoyed it even more if I had some basis in Japanese history and an understanding of where the culture is coming from. And I have a little bit more of it in that I had to take some sort of general 
coursework for various regions of Asia as part of my minor, but my main focus was China more so than Japan. So I definitely can understand that. And I probably have some gaps myself, but I definitely kind of come to the couch with more sort of knowledge of just culture, mythology, that sort of thing. I mean, I guess I just say that ultimately in the sense that there are times where I feel I could very definitely say I'm speaking with some authority about the history of a particular film or a genre. And in this case, I always want to make sure I'm I'm coming at it much more, I think, from the perspective of a layman and just finding it fascinating and doing what I can to piece things together. But I don't want to be seen as an authority on it because I'm not. Although I I can say that even not being an authority on the cultural references, being someone who's steeped in media studies, there are certainly very clear metaphors here and very clear correlations that kind of cross boundaries for culture. Sure. I I think one of the things that, that struck me right away, though, that I think made me feel it was more important to say it at the outset was the predominance of water imagery and the sea as a major theme in this one that is really not anywhere in the remake. Maybe a little. Just a little. A touch. But but in this, the notion of the sea and even references to the sea almost as a character, like we lose a lot of people to the sea. That is a fishing culture's representation of a natural force that is all pervasive in their lives and the source of life as well as death in a way that you don't see in the remake and other things. And and there's also, as we'll talk later, there's even the implication that maybe the sea has a direct relationship with where Sadako came from. Mm. So I guess I should start this out by saying, if you have not seen either one, Ring or The Ring, I would recommend that you do before you listen, because... We're, we're definitely going to deep dive here into this. And get back to our podcast within seven days, just in case. <laughs> I feel like we should put a disclaimer on this, that listening to the podcast about the ring will in no way apply to your life as watching the tape of the ring would. I can't be responsible for any random clips I might decide to put in in post-production that are sounds from the tape. <laughs> We'll start from the beginning with Ring in, in 98, which, again, when you look it up, The Ring is a pretty sprawling horror franchise. Yeah. And in a very, I don't know what else you might want to delve into, but just as a way of laying some groundwork, 
it all starts from a book series that originally started with a trilogy that then expanded to include a short story collection. Two more books after that uh, was adapted first into a television movie, then into this film. And this film, in many ways, really sparked the massive expansion of the franchise into eight films from Japan, I think, to date, following two distinctly different timelines. And Halloween film fans can understand how that works. Mm-hmm. Manga series, two different television shows, a different TV movie and a series, uh, an official Korean remake, a number of unofficial rip-off Korean and Chinese remakes and crossovers with their own country's stuff, and then a series of three, I think, to date, Western remakes and sequels. It is an incredibly successful and very popular series that... For all intents and purposes, is the thing that cemented in the minds of even the most casual horror fan that image of the little girl with the soggy hair over her face as like one of these quintessential creepy horror images to the point where don't, isn't that what we see in Cabin in the Woods? Yeah. We, we get And so much imagery from this that, that then gets lifted by not only other Japanese horror, and, and of course this led to the success of things like The Grudge, which itself is growing into a massive series and then had a crossover with this and such a huge impact pop culturally. And I also found out, because I was curious before we started recording, this image of the girl with the hair goes back to the 60s particularly. And I looked it up. The first time that most people apparently credit this as actually happening was in an anthology film called Kaiden from 1964-65. It was a collection of Japanese ghost stories and was one of the first, if not the first, depictions of that kind of figure that then later gets basically institutionalized as this character in the Ring series. I guess you could think of that anthology in the same way maybe as the book anthologies in the U.S. of scary stories to tell in the dark. Yeah, kind of maybe. Bring together what would have been folk tales and would have probably existed in some form or another and kind of put all of the folk versions of something together into one story. I mean, I love the heck out of those books when I was a kid. I have not seen the movie yet because mm. they, they went with one of the bug stories. And I don't you know, want to know anything about that. We've established me and bugs and faces and such yep. so nope I, I may not be able to watch it but we'll see how it goes but in any case having that kind of imagery clearly is something that was already resonant with the culture so it's something that feels very much familiar i guess you want something that people are going to see and it's going to chill them instantly because they're going to be like i know what that is also i have to say the movie starts off immediately with the toho logo and then goes to seawater and i'm thinking we're not going to get godzilla at all (laughs) in any of this i mean there's still time maybe there will be godzilla versus sadako yeah yeah brings his friends in to help Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think that's a good plan But yeah, it starts with the seawater. And actually, as we talked about right away, both the original and the remake, they start off, I mean, there's also, no matter how much this is coming from a certain cultural tradition, 
This is also a movie in 1998. It has to have been at least in part influenced by lots of other things that happened here as well mm -hmm. in the history of horror filmmaking. And the movie really begins very much like already a typical slasher opening with two girls together talking. And we both said it really had a scream kind of feel to it, the beginning of it. Definitely, especially because it feels like you're seeing an intimate moment with two friends. Like it doesn't, it's not a, a large space. It's very small. They're in a bedroom and talking. Uh, the use of phone call that scares you. Yeah. That felt very Scream-like. I mean, worth noting that I love Scream and we also recently watched all the Scream movies again, which might be why it's top of mind. But also it felt a little like No, it, it was there. And it's a great construct for starting a movie because we've talked before about sort of naturally working in exposition. And in a sense, it kind of operates like the opening of The Fog where you have someone telling a ghost story to her friend saying, have you heard this tale? But in essence, she's telling it to the audience as well, who's now hearing this ghost story for the first time. It's kind of offset by her friend being terribly spooked and telling her like, oh, I experienced this, I saw it, and then saying, hey, just kidding, except that she's not, which is also a very scream-like twistiness to an opening of it for those i guess well I was, I was about to say for those who aren't aware if you're not aware you should go see it first so for those who are aware but would like a reminder the basis of the tale in ring is that it all started when a kid was on vacation with his family and they were at a remote mountain cabin and he wanted to watch a baseball game and they were going to be out doing camping things or what have you so he puts the tape in to record the baseball game, except the channels are different there than they are back home. And he wasn't thinking about that, recorded a station that had no signal. So it should have been a blank tape, except it wasn't a blank tape. There were all these disturbing images on it. And after he watched it, the phone rings and tells him that he will die in seven days. And lo and behold, seven days later, he does. And now anyone who watches the tape has that same experience happen to them. And that's sort of the tale in a nutshell. Very traditional ghost story. It's also worth noting that everybody, well, I say everybody, I mean, you tend to remember if you're familiar with it, the seven days thing, which is actually from the remake, as we found out, because in the original, they say you're going to die in one week. Although, to be fair, we're basing some of our assumptions of differences having watched the film in its original language, the only way you should watch a movie from any other language, by the way, in its original language with English subtitles rather than dubbed. But that also means that if we're relying on the subtitles, we don't know unless someone's really in the know whether what they're saying in Japanese equates to saying seven days or one week. The way, it's, the way it was subtitled, they never used seven days, they said one week, and then in the remake you hear seven so the question is, is it really different or is it just being translated? I mean, part of it might just be a different relationship with time. It's like as the original moves forward in the film, they give you the date and the day of the week to tell you where you are. That's just something where maybe 
people do math quicker (laughs) or they're just used to seeing it that way. So you're progressing through it by date and day of the week. And I guess maybe that still equates out to a week or seven days and neither of us speak Japanese. So and also, I don't think you even hear the phone call. Like the viewer is not privy to whatever phone call is happening. And then in the remake, of course, they actually count down the days for you. Day one, day two, day three. There's a lot of dumbing down, I think. Yeah, and I think maybe we'll we'll try and save it for a discussion specifically of the remake rather than yeah bounce back and forth. The 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 captions, by the way, there are a lot of aspects of this that I think also later influenced a lot of other movies. Most significantly, the more I think of it, the Paranormal Activity series, which also has a lot of its basis in videotape. There are certain things in that, I know you haven't seen them, there's certain things in this that really struck me, including a certain soundscape quality to some of the only, there's not really much music in this that that there is, which also sounds a bit like what Blair Witch would do a year later, more sort of like sound than music to create a creepy feel, but like a stop and start to some music, the paranormal activity used to good effect. But another thing that got me that also seemed very paranormal activity, rather the reverse is that late in the movie at one point, we're getting all those date captions. Very late in the movie, basically when you get past the part where you think everything's over, and then you find out, wait a minute, it's not. The caption fades up on the screen again with the date. A beautiful little touch to say, oh, you thought we were done counting days? Obviously not. And it's like it was a great little extra moment to say, Something's still happening, or we wouldn't be showing you what the date is. The date's also red. Yeah, and and Paranormal Activity does that a lot also, using captions on the screen to show timestamps. And basically every time a certain thing happens and thing fades up, it's like, oh, we're in for it again. So I see now that this is... I don't know if it goes before this also, but this is one of the earliest times I've seen that kind of tactic being used very nicely. So I love that as a touch. I liked a lot of this. I thought it was, I, I think right from the beginning I was saying it's just so logically paced, very nicely told. It's been a long time since I've seen this movie, but it definitely holds up. It's very, and I don't mean this in a bad way at all, it's very compact too. It's it's not much more than an hour and a half. Yeah. It ticks along really well. You never feel like their investigation is lagging or the the race to try to save themselves is lagging it it doles out information very nicely i just think it is very nicely paced and yeah it's just it felt very satisfying and i was very happy to encounter something like this for the original i was like oh i can i could totally see why this became a classic right Mm -hmm. away one of the things too when you talk about things kind of being well paced and kind of naturally moving along is the construct of Someone who is a journalist having a tragedy happen in her own family and then realizing that it reaches beyond just her family unit, that there's something else going on and why did this happen? And it's a natural curiosity. It's something sort of just built into the type of personality you're going to have if you're a newspaper journalist for a living it feels very natural that she's then going to try to figure out exactly what happened because the original group of four kids who I guess had watched this movie and then died all died on the same day. 
and one of them was the niece of our main character. So it just folds in very nicely and kind of pulls her into the story in a very natural way. I also really like the relationship between her and her ex-husband. It doesn't take him long to believe in what's going on. But then again, another thing we get very quickly is we find out that the little boy, great, great moment, by the way, a great beat when she discovers a little boy has seen it. And now like the stakes are really high because the kid's in danger too. But the, the fact that we find out that both the father and then by extension, their son has psychic abilities, which opens them up to an awareness of Sadako and what she's doing, which also leads me to one of my general statements about Japanese horror or anything that I've always found fascinating, which is it seems to me no matter what kind of story they tell, so many Japanese uh, films always feel to me like they're inherently science fiction or fantasy, like it's almost never just one thing. It's almost never just a story about a ghost or just a thriller about this. You always get, oh, and this character also has the ability to move things with their mind. Did we mention that? I made a note where I said, like, why every Japanese movie becomes a version of the X-Men. There's always something like that. And it's great that, like, because of his psychic abilities, there was that great running thing where you could really figure out the pattern of how his powers work, that it works with contact. That if you're in contact with him, you can be pulled into the vision. If he's in contact with something, he can see what's going on. And then other than that, he also just kind of can get a general sense of things. It's an amazing beat the first time you meet him. Like the first time you as the audience sees him is on the street in the rain, holding an umbrella and facing his son who presumably he hasn't seen in a long time, also holding an umbrella. And they both stop and they both look at each other for an uncomfortably long time, say nothing, and then both keep walking. And it's like once you get to know his character later on, you realize they probably like had some kind of conversation without talking. And then he kept going because he, when he gets to the apartment, already knows like what grade in school he's in. And like how he's doing and like clearly he kind of gleaned it from him. But there's a great beat as well when he gets to the apartment before he even really knows the full extent of what's going on. Where he pauses when he first steps in and kind of stands stock still and kind of glances about with his eyes like something's not quite right. Then he sort of shakes it off and keeps going and it comes back up later when their son watches the tape and she's like why would you do this and he was like she told me to and she's like who and he says that his cousin told him to and obviously she has died days earlier he immediately was like that makes a lot of sense because i felt something when i walked in your apartment it must have been the ghost of your niece and clearly he can sense that too and it's like it didn't phase him at all it's just part of his life He's gone on to uh, a number of appearances in American films and Lost and a number of other things and has very, very luscious hair. Very luscious. That I needed to point out. It was very important that I point that out. <laughs> His hair is epic. I liked him a lot in the part. I liked all of them. I, I feel bad saying it, but sometimes I feel also when watching 
a film like that, whatever the country, I also sometimes feel at a disadvantage in the sense that there is a charm and a power to seeing something where you don't know anyone in it because you can argue they can become the characters that much more. Yeah. For me, however, I still find I tend to emotionally connect better with a movie if I'm recognizing people. Mm. And when I don't, I feel like, all right, I, I feel a bit more distant from it. And I didn't feel that with this because they're so instantly likable and engaging with just a few quick character strokes. You get, you know, what you need to about these people and they wind up being a great team. The structure of the haunting and this creature that was once this little girl, Sadako, and what's going on is so nicely set up. So you got the thing about you watch the tape, which evidently was sent by her by some spectral means to that television because that's where she's actually entombed in the well that's under the cabin that those kids were, you know, staying at, Mm -hmm. which of course is the whole mystery that unfolds right to the end. And that video contains iconography that refers to things. There's the oval mirror on the, on the wall. And there are a couple other images, the text of eruption. It's not that long, the tape. Which, again, as someone who saw the remake first, I was actually surprised at what was not there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was expecting to see all the stuff that I'd seen. I thought, well, they probably carried it all over. They don't. The tape's actually much shorter and has only a few things. It ends on that image of the well, which the, every time we see it, also like every time we see the tape played throughout the movie, you start to see just a shred more of her starting to climb out until the very end. There are only a few other little touches as far as the rules when you've been cursed and you take a picture, your face is warped. It looks like somebody's done like the Photoshop smudge mm-hmm. on your face, no matter what electronic device takes your image. I think we just see photos in the original. In the original, it's just photos, just either photos. a film photo or a Polaroid. And that's really it, isn't it, in, in the original film? Pretty much. And then it's seven days, and then she turns up, and what little we see of the effect of her arriving to fulfill the curse is that your heart stops either from fear or a combination of whatever attack she does and mm-hmm. you're left gray-faced and like with a grimace of a shriek on your face relatively normal i mean like real looking though what glimpses you see of these people dead they look like they're horrified but they look like a real human face would be horrified well, i, I say that say for... they they look a little bit like they've been drowned yeah, that's right. And they do have the gray ashen mm-hmm. kind of look, right? Like they've been underwater in the right. well. That's a good point. It's just, it's very effective throughout the whole thing. It It's genuinely a gripping, unfolding story. And I do think there's also a nice kind of unsettling quality to the whole thing where you know something creepy's happening and you don't really get full payoff, as you shouldn't maybe, right until the very end. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also sort of a murder mystery that happens to be a horror movie. It's because she knows something happened to her niece that's not normal. Like, this is not a regular type of death that occurred. And she's trying to get to the bottom of it, trying to solve the mystery. And in doing that, uncovers this ghost story. But in essence, it's sort of two types of movie rolled into one trying to solve the mystery of her niece's death and then ultimately that leads into trying to solve the mystery 
of this little girl and what happened to her and her death. And then also trying, you know, not to die herself. Um, and ultimately also trying to make sure she can protect her son who has now watched the tape and she firmly believes will result in death at that point. Yeah. And the father has no problem. Like I said, the father has no problem believing it. Like he's resistant maybe for like a minute or two, but then Mm -hmm. once he's involved and because of his sensitivity as well, you have a whole team here because he understands, yes, this is something and they're investigating together. I like when he talks to the old man, the the father Mm -hmm. and is able to, get through to him like you said earlier you know he's he has a lot of different abilities as a result of his psychic tendency it's basically that he's an empath yeah and and that confrontation on the beach is a very good moment that's the part i think where the old man says something about the sea swallows some of them up every year or something like that that i felt was very telling i also made a note by the way it's not something that's necessarily underscored another thing by the way and that'll be a point of comparison later is I feel this movie does a good job of laying out a lot of symbolism and thematic material while never treating you like a fool. It doesn't really bother underscoring anything and it never shows you clips of stuff from earlier in the movie in association (laughs) with a reveal later in the film. Um, But there's also, it occurred to me, the sound of the ocean and the sound of static on a television are very similar. And I like the idea of the static on the TV. Maybe that's a connection, that it's the sound of the sea and that sort of wash of a sound. I also noted, like, you know, that we see the glimpses of the fact that they were doing psychic testing on her. They made her do like a demo of her ESP powers. There's a lot of variations on Nightmare on Elm Street and haunting and other stuff going on in this. But I also made a note there's a line where. The guy says something about how the professor who was investigating ESP was working with Sadako. They, they, the media built him up and then tore him down. And they said that they haven't changed much in 40 years. It's one of the only times, I think, in that movie you get just sledgehammer, hit the nail on the head theme statement. Well, also, if you're comparing the television and the static to the ocean, that gives a double meaning to the sort of folk saying that they glean from the video which was frolic in brine goblins be thine that if you if you mess about with the sea you're gonna get swallowed up by it you can't treat it with frivolity you have to treat it seriously and take it seriously because you know this is a fishing community a fishing culture and this is not something you mess with it's unpredictable it's wild it's deadly Kind of like you said earlier, it's life-giving and life-taking. You could apply that same folk saying to television if you're thinking of the static as the water, that if you sort of treat this flippantly, that it could not go well. And of course, the show-stopping moment is Sadako emerging from a television. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of great media commentary in that. That, again, I think is handled well here and does not treat you like an idiot and and let you figure it out. It's also worth noting that David Lynch leans rather heavily. You haven't seen that that one. But David Lynch leans very heavily into using TV static as a recurring sound and visual image in Fire Walk With Me. And I'm now also thinking of that association, too. 
Mm. Uh, which is all all the more interesting because we only found out after watching that Lynch was their original choice to direct the remake. Which would have made it a very different movie, yeah. I think, instead of Gore Verbinski. So there's some interesting connections. I hate to admit this, but I don't understand this situation at all. Is it too soon for me to mention my thoughts about where Sadako comes from? No, not at all. Lay it on them. Okay. So one of the things about Sadako is that we find out she's this little girl who has evidently had very powerful psychic abilities to the extent of being able perhaps to kill someone from at least a short distance, if not a long distance. Mm -hmm. We see it happen. We know that the father killed her and put her in the well. That's where, which is also worth noting for later, it's the father that was the murderer. Well, the doctor that was studying her ESP powers, who everyone assumed was the father. Right. And there's, okay, so there's some confusion about where did Sadako come from and the fact that they got her from somewhere, what's really going on there. And then we keep getting these references to the sea. And I'm not necessarily saying, I I haven't really delved enough into it to say, are other people writing about this or talking about it? I started getting a weird shape of water kind of vibe with the mother, because there's also a line about how the old man tells him at one point that he used to listen to her talk to the ocean, but he couldn't understand it because it wasn't human language. There's also, they have a pantheon of, creatures that exist in the sea there's one i can't remember the name now that is sometimes a demonic creature that can kill you but will also help human beings if you establish a relationship with them which makes sense for a fishing culture yeah and so i'm thinking is sadako supposed to be the result of a union between her mother and some kind of sea god or sea being and also you get that one last final image the most we get of sadako besides the hair her final attack is when you get that extreme close-up of one of her eyes which by the way is one of the most prevalent images on the web when you look up ring which again following that standard thing that's the last damn shot you get of her and it's everywhere kind of looks human but it also struck me as looking like a fish fish yeah Mm -hmm. and i'm thinking sadako is not human she's some kind of mer thing (laughs) and i don't know if other people have really gone all and also i don't know if it's happened in other movies we haven't watched the 1200 other chapters of this it also kind of begs the question where if when she was killed if she was just buried in a hole instead of tossed in a well would she still have had the power to come back and influence things the way she did or by putting her into water which is ostensibly her element, do you then give her power in death that she wouldn't otherwise have? Like basically dumb choice. If you want to try and kill the child who is in fact a water demon, maybe don't throw her in the water. I was the one time in this movie that I was disappointed was her final emergence from the television. A scene that I'm sure if anybody's familiar with this at all, or the remake at all, probably remembers. I was a little disappointed. I think this is the one thing, the only thing, that I think my experience of the remake first set me up for a shot that was not quite as finessed as the one in the remake. I think the ability to do something a little more special effects oriented, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, I think was an improvement on the visual and the original. It actually felt a little cheap, 
to me in that moment. It felt like we were shooting it on like a little set on a TV show. I don't think that really is much of a criticism, and it's just about my personal aesthetic, I guess. Mm -hmm. It still was powerful. I just think that uh, it's the one thing I think the remake ups the ante in a good way in terms of how they deliver on that. I would agree on that Okay. Yeah, and mostly with the addition of water. And the fact that she looks like she's still video when she comes out. Mm -hmm. All of that together, I felt, really gave it an added creep factor. Not that she isn't still very creepy in the original anyway, so... But also speaking of creepy kids, as we do... Oh no, yes. Well, I will... I just want to add, as we're still talking about the original, that their son is portrayed as being very smart and very independent but otherwise very sweet he she takes him to go fishing with his grandfather and he's just delighted and they're like out in the river like waiting in their waiting boots trying to catch fish which i guess maybe is another sort of reference into to everything going on that i'm just thinking of now yeah he also is just the kid. I mean, he's needed to be independent because his mother works all the time. She's a single mother. You can tell from the beginning she's telling him, you know, just heat up your your dinner if I'm not home. And he gets himself to and from school without a problem. Presumably the character is supposed to be about the same age as the actor was at the time, which was seven. He's quite young, but very capable, very smart and quiet and sweet. Like, does not give you weird, creepy vibes. No. He's just a kid. And also, he's pretty much written out of the movie in the third act. She sends him to go stay with her father while she and her ex are out investigating the final chapter in this and figuring out what goes on. You don't see him on film again after that. He's not coming back in. You know, your last shot of this movie is her packing the VCR into the car and calling her dad saying, I'm on my way and I need you to do something for Yoichi. Like, I need you to do something for your grandson is pretty intense, I think, to know that she's going to ask her father to take this on. Well, like, as we find out, the trick here is Sadako wants you to make copies so she wants you to spread it like a virus. That's how you survive. Which again, this among other elements of this, we started realizing how much it follows really has this to thank for setting up a lot of the basic structure. Yeah, and the soundscape as well. Very much so. I'll also note that that last shot of her driving away from us to a sky of storms is basically a flat out just a lift of the last shot in Terminator. So I'm sure that has to be deliberate. But there's that idea that you have to make the copies. So they're going to make copies. They're going to pass it along. But I actually read something a few day, a couple days ago and we re- after watching the original that said this is a great example. And I don't know to what extent the authority of the the people I was reading. It wasn't a university site, so there's that. They were pointing out this was a good example of the divergence between Japanese culture and um, American or Western culture is looking at the ways these two movies end. And in this one, 
she's going to turn to the elder of the family, the father, and ask for help and have him be the one to facilitate saving the grandson. There's something they say that's very distinctly, and I'm only saying without knowing if it's true or mm. not, they say is very distinctly Japanese in the reflection of responsibility of the turning to an elder for in the family for an answer that we definitely don't see that happen in the other one. There's a different ending to the other one that goes in a, in a slightly different direction. I can see that. I would also say that some of it is simply necessity, that her father clearly lives outside the city in a much more remote area. Her son has been staying with him while she sorts this out. She thinks everything is over because she's gone past her time limit. And then lo and behold, Ruji, who's her ex, gets killed by Sadako. That's killed the TV by the tape. moment. Yeah. yeah, the TV moment coming out. It's a very different moment because she rushes over there, first of all, to see that his assistant or like his grad student who presumably he's dating. I assume. Is the one that found his body. She's like in the hallway, just completely ashen. Although, you know, the way they handle that, even that feels more proper than it does in the remake. It does. Yeah. And she's going there to try to see him and they're telling her well, the body's already been removed and she's distraught. She's going home trying to figure out what did I do that he didn't do? Like I thought we ended this thing. Because he's a psychic, gets that amazing vision of him with like the sheet over his head pointing to her purse. The X. The yeah. X. Yeah. Um, realizing that she made the copy of the tape. But that moment of the realization means that the clock is ticking for her son, who she thought was safe. She thought she could just take a breath and relax. So now she's got to drive out to her father's remote house, bring her own VCR with her because she doesn't have time to go to the office. Because that's where her son is. And the only person who's with her son is her father. So if she needs to make sure that this is taken care of quickly, the only person who's going to be there to watch the copy of the tape once they make it is her father. So in a sense, I can see the interpretation of deferring to the elder or deferring to age, but also it feels just like pure, raw, like emotional necessity of need to make sure it's taken care of. There's also, I mean, regardless of cultural background, there's also something interesting thematically in this version of the story that is also absent later mm. of it being a story that involves fathers. She turns to her father for help, but it's also ostensibly a father figure who is the one that killed Sadako, thereby creating the situation, except that it wasn't potentially really the father so there are like father figures echoed throughout this and her ex being an absent father absent figure. father who basically then comes in and takes on that responsibility again in trying to save them all so there's a lot of that going on in this one that feels balanced and like that's part of the story is we're getting that the only other thing i would say is that your main sort of point of view character right glasikawa is the the character name and liked her right away She's so likable. Yeah. She is such a likable character. You can tell that her heart is in both her profession and motherhood, that she cares very much about both and feels very guilty that she can't spend enough time with her child, which is also sort of that theme running through of like time. Your time is limited. What are you doing with your time? What if you only had a week left 
to live, would you have spent your time with the people that you want to spend your time with? And also the theme of what constitutes abandonment of your child and parenting and what's the ultimate abandonment, but, but death. Know, killing the, the child. So yeah, that yeah. also recurs. To um, but it's very clear that she is a character you can empathize with. Definitely. And him too, I think. Him I mean, too. Father also. I think it sounds like whatever they had clearly was built on something that was like deep and intellectual. He's a professor. She's mm -hmm. a journalist. But one of the things that I realized after the fact and after watching the remake, which I hadn't seen, is there's also a flipped dynamic in their relationship between the original and the remake in terms of age. Because I don't know whether it's really supposed to translate that way on film in the original, but there is a, a noticeable age difference between the actors. So at the time that they filmed it, he was 38 and she was 25. Mm. Okay. Um, which is quite an age gap. And if their son is supposed to be about the age the actor is, which is seven. Well, 12, 13 years. It's not such a bad it's thing. Not such a bad thing. Yeah. It creates a different relationship right. dynamic there when you bring a kid into it where he was definitely older than she was. Was he her professor and dating her at the time and they got together and had a kid possibly clearly he seems to like dating students still yeah that's a, i mean in any situation that's a problematic way to yeah so i mean she would have had her son when she was like 22 if their characters are supposed to reflect the ages of the actors right like that's right. a big if having not read the book as well i don't know you if they introduce them by age. My argument would be you don't need to. This you, is true. You go by the movie, which is all we have. Um, and in the absence of being given any conflicting information, you should feel free to go with what you've discovered there. But there's a different dynamic when you get to the remake in that your journalist character, who's being played by Naomi Watts, Naomi Watts was 34 at the time they were filming it. So first of all, she's already older and reads older than 25 yeah and her ex is being played by an actor who at the time was 28 and definitely made to look younger and more childish than she is so it's a very different relationship dynamic as well that's only the tip of the iceberg for differences oh boy is it or volcano tip of the volcano <laughs> tip of the volcano yeah by the way to have a beat in the original of the mother of Sadako as someone who herself is psychic and threw herself into a volcano. And then in the remake to not have any volcanoes at all and nobody jumping into them is a very large disappointment for me <laughs> because I just like that as such a dramatic like story beat mm -hmm. because I mean, there's a difference between jumping off of something and jumping into something. And boy, did she jump into something. In place of that, you do get Brian Cox building the most elaborate electrocution device that any <laughs> farmer has ever built. He's been thinking about that for a long time. A long time. He was just waiting for a reporter to randomly wander into his house before getting going with it. Mm -hmm. But yes, I think we would both heartily recommend... Well, recommend what am i even saying that for you've watched it already and we're telling you everything about it i don't know some people don't mind spoilers i guess okay they'll watch it anyway and for other people i would say yeah i mean i i having taken this long to get to it mm. 
this is an occasion where I can say I was very satisfied and very happy to see this deserves the reputation that it has. And I'd be genuinely interested in seeing some of the other original, the Japanese films, even though I'm quite sure, like many things, there's probably diminishing returns. But it was a wonderful start. It probably, like many of these things, it never needed to have anything follow it, really. Mm -hmm. But it became popular, and so there we are. But I'd be interested in seeing more of it because I think this did a beautiful job. And if that kind of storytelling, at least, maintains itself, the sort of economy in character and pacing, I think that it could be satisfying to see some of the others, too. And I would say as someone who hasn't seen this in a while, watching it again, I can also recommend that it holds up to viewing many, many years later. And I, I will throw in for you a little anecdote about my first viewing of this film that I have not told you yet. Okay. Um, and is partially the reason why it has been a very long time since I have seen this movie. Uh-oh. As mentioned at the start of things, we rented it on tape from Blockbuster. So, of course, we're watching this movie on a VHS tape. Where were you? We were in our college apartment, like okay. on campus, like an on-campus apartment. Okay. Watching it on TV in our living room. You finish out the movie credits roll turn off the tv the moment we turned off the tv the phone rang in our apartment oh my god no joke <laughs> the phone rang that's amazing and when i picked up the phone it was a wrong number so it was somebody who sounded confused at the sound of my voice and of course, I'm the one who had to pick up the phone because the boys that I lived with were too scared out of their minds to answer it. So we're all sitting there in the room looking at a phone that's ringing, just like in the movie. And I'm like, oh, for Pete's sake, somebody's got to pick up the dang thing. So I pick up the phone. And of course, it's like a confused, stuttering voice on the other end, which in and of itself also kind of creeped me out because it's like, what is this? At first, I was convinced maybe they had, like, gotten one of our friends uh, to, like, prank us. Right. Nope. Because the only friend of ours I could think of who would have pranked us, the next time I saw him, I asked him about it. And when I told him the story, not only did he not do it, but his face went so white <laughs> because just the, like, recounting of the story, like, scared him out of his mind. It's been a while since I've seen the movie because holy hell, that was something. And like that is an experience that just can't be replicated really these days because number one, who calls on the house phone anymore except for people trying to trick me out of my identifying information? Mm -hmm. And two, who's watching anything on VHS? It's like watching it streaming feels different than physically having an object that contains the film like a relic and the willpower it took me not to tell you that before we watched it uh is extraordinary well, i'm but... glad nobody called right after we were done. <laughs> so there you go that is that is my story of the first time well watching ring that's amazing Well, after that astounding story about what could arguably be the only truly perfect way to see the original ring. Arguably. Even if it means risking a heart attack. 
Uh, we're moving on to the remake from 2002, which, as we mentioned at the beginning, I saw only once before when it was originally out in theaters. And I may have told part of this story. My story is not nearly as good. But I may have told this before in some other context, but this, you know, a lot of times people have said to me variations like, you know, you like horror, you like to be scared. And, and I've always said most of the time I don't get scared, unsettled maybe sometimes, but I'm not watching horror because I want to be scared or that's being scared as a part of it. I like the stories. I like the characters. It's a mood, an atmosphere. It's a mood. Yeah, much more so than anything else. But there have been occasionally things that I found unsettling or that give me bad dreams afterward. And seeing the ring in theaters is the one and only time I can remember in my life that I actually physically jumped out of my seat. And that's the TV scene in the remake. And the only thing I was telling you when we first started all this was, I don't really remember very much what my detailed feelings were about this. I don't remember having many issues with it back then. And I remember liking it, enjoying it. But definitely now, in contrast to you saying how watching the original Ring again all this time later it holds up, watching the remake for me all this time later, it does not. It is an inferior film. There will go into, there are a lot of things about it that actually feel it's, it's insulting to your intelligence. But in a way, I'm not sure how much of that would really have been thrown into as sharp a relief if we didn't watch the original first and I saw how much lower in caliber the remake mm. is in comparison. And it's not, I don't think it's a poorly made movie, but there's so much it tries to do that it just wastes time doing for no good reason. And it just makes things worse. Ultimately, what I think the problem is both with this remake and in many cases, most if not all English language remakes of foreign language films is that it tries too hard to prove why it was necessary. It just tries too hard to prove why they needed to make another one rather than just release the original in theaters. You have a movie. It's good. It has subtitles. Okay. I lived in China for six years. That was six years of my life where anytime I watched a blockbuster film i actually watched it dubbed in chinese with english subtitles uh so i've kind of had a different experience of that of like it being normal well the pathological resistance of most american moviegoers to the idea of hearing anyone speak another language i used to i might have said in the past mm. i've never quite understood but today here in 2020 i have no problem understanding the sheer xenophobia that underlies and i should say there's also the flip side of that where it just depended on the theater and the showing and whether or not they even had dubs ready yet there were a lot of movies i went to that were just the regular film in english with chinese subtitles and chinese theater goers had no problem with it Mm. they'd go they'd read the subtitles sometimes i'd get sort of uh an interesting cultural shift watching something and realizing the chinese translation was very different Hmm. from what the English was. Um, And granted, my reading skills are not as good as my speaking skills. The the most stark example of which is I was still, I was living in China when Casino Royale came out and I saw it in a theater that had an English, uh, like an English showing with Chinese subtitles. And there's the scene where Felix is out of money and he's out of the game. And 
James is offering like to like lend him some to buy him in. And he's like, I don't need your money. Except that the translation in Chinese said, I don't need your money. I'm an American. Interesting. <laughs> and I didn't notice stuff like that a lot, but I noticed it sometimes. You do get a little bit of a cultural shift depending on which culture is subtitling. I don't feel like you get that cultural shift too much when you get an English subtitled version of a foreign language film. I think it would just more be, and I wouldn't go so far as to say ineptitude, but I would just say like sometimes things maybe aren't translated as well as they could be. Or there isn't a good translation of it. But Um, it doesn't necessarily mean there's any malicious intent or any attempt to to twist or sometimes it just makes you chuckle because we realized early on watching ring that it was subtitled by a brit because they used the word snogging yeah there's snogging and there's something like a, I there was just a lot of that like the one guy takes her to the place and says i'll leave you to it and i thought no american says that yeah it's like they tried to show why they had to make it in english yes rather than just release the original it doesn't make any sense to me why that feels like something that should be done well let's go through some of the details here so the ring remake came along in 2002 gore verbinski directed it who went on to direct all the parts of the caribbean movies or at least a lot of them but this was one of the first things he did i think that really started grabbing people's attention the first thing i think we saw that tells you a lot right at the outset is the original ring is like an hour and a half hour 35 36 something like that mm-hmm. this one was nearly two hours and our first thought was what can you what are you going to do and to, well what you're going to do is create an excessively more complicated backstory involving horses and the family situation that led to samara being put in the well and then I think at one point I was actually saying to you, the beginning starts off promising. First of all, the beginning is almost beat for beat, the original. Two girls telling the story, right down to pouring a glass of water. I like that you mentioned the glass is bigger because it's America. It's one of the things that honestly drove me crazy the whole time I lived in Asia is that the glasses that you get for home use, like a drinking glass, hold like four ounces. (laughs) And it's like, I need more liquid than that in my glass. (laughs) So a lot of the setup is the same. It's the scream opening. It's Amber Tamblyn, by the way, as the girl who dies, who's the cousin. The same uh, family structure here, too. Mm -hmm. Our main character, Naomi Watts, is Rachel. She's a reporter. Her son, David Dorfman, oh, we'll get to him, is Aiden, whose cousin, who's really close to, has now died. And then we also notice, like, right out of the gate, this movie starts adding icons and symbolism to the whole process. One of the things that keeps coming up that's not a bad addition is the constant appearance of running water turning up. It's actually also kind of like the fog, like where it seeps out of the Elizabeth Dane piece of wood. Mm -hmm. You get water seeping out from a doorknob or under the thing coming out of the television. That comes up. But this movie is just relentlessly green. It's that color grading that we talked about episodes back with The Fog. There was this early 2000s thing where they would just heavily color grade things with that green-gray. It was genuinely annoying after a while how green everything was in this. I think at the time they must have thought it gave it a dreamlike quality or made it feel like a dreamscape, but gosh, are there so many other ways that you can do that? This adds a lot of stuff. It, it it adds a lot more things that happen. People that are cursed start scratching out faces with pen strokes. Yeah, they get bloody noses. You do get the thing where the photos are warped, but 
One of the other n- notes that I had at the time, first movie, there are you get it, you're cursed, and then seven days later, uh, unless you make a copy, evidently. In this one, however, as we're progressing, the signs of the curse grow more and more disgusting and disturbing, leading up to, I think, the worst, which is the part where she starts choking and she pulls out long strings of Samara's hair, ending in what it turns out is one of the little sticky pads that they put her on when she was having her psychic testing done in the institution or whatever, and she pulls it out of her mouth. And it's like what I said to you was, this movie seemed to be making the curse feel much more like someone dying of a progressive terminal disease. Mm-hmm. The The first one feels supernatural like a curse, but you don't change as a person. In this one, it's like she's getting weaker. She's being worn down. There's the mark on her arm, and which was one of the few other things I think they did in the original. But it felt very much like a disease metaphor in this one than the original had. For sure. It also really just jumps in from the beginning with laying out for the viewer that there's something definitely supernatural happening. And it's like in the original, it's a weird thing. She tells the story. And when the girl dies or when anyone dies from the curse, what you see is it just goes to like a a still frame, like a negative, like a photo negative still frame. And you don't see what's happening. So you could see she was interacting with the TV. There's static, but it's nothing. She goes back into the kitchen and then she turns around and makes this horrified face and then it's a still. But when they do the remake, she's running through the house. It really feels scream-like at that point. She's like calling for her friend who's not answering. She's going up the stairs. She sees water coming out from her bedroom door and from the doorknob and opens it. And the viewer at that point is very clearly being shown there is some weird stuff going on here. It's definitely supernatural. She's definitely experiencing some kind of haunting that leads to her death. You also get the quick CGI of her face, you know, and and the faces of the people who died are much more extreme special makeup effects than the original. So I think they gave up way too much in the first 10 minutes of the movie. Like they're already giving away that there's something going on here. It's exactly like we talked about actually with House on Haunted Hill. When they did that remake of House on Haunted Hill, they made it very clear from the beginning that this house is evil and it's haunted and the spirits are doing things. There's no mystery of what's going on here. Is it just people playing tricks on each other? Is this even a real thing? It's like, nah, they just slam you with it. And as we mentioned earlier, I feel like almost all, if not all the changes in this movie are with an eye toward expecting and maybe not necessarily wrongly, that the audience it's going to be playing to needs hand-holding on a level that the original did not presume. Everything about this is not just dumbed down, but so painfully obvious. Like, as we said already, the captions on the screen are no longer dates that require you to, you know, God forbid, do some math or figure out what day it is. Right. But countdown, day one, day two, day three. We want to make damn sure the audience knows what day it is. The other thing is like even down to the craziness of every time she searches for something on the internet, we have to be shown her clicking the search button. The it's little, like the little hand it just goes boop. I get it. I get she's searching for things. You don't need to show me the button every time. 
And then the tape is so much more elaborate. There's so much more iconography in the tape. But one of the things they did by doing that was it enabled them through the seven days to keep having her encountering that iconography as if to suggest in a way the original didn't that the tape is basically showing you here's all the things that are going to happen at some point as signs that you're continuing along this timeline toward death. You're going to see a ladder like the ladder in the tape. There's going to be a chair and you're going to find that room that they kept Samara in up in the barn because that makes sense. And the tree. I remember the tree? Yes, we remember the tree because you showed us the tree at the beginning of the movie like it was the most important thing in the world. So we're going to remember the tree in an hour and 50 minutes. You don't need... And the oh, other you mean thing, the, the tree that paints the cabin red like blood every time the sun sets? And of course, the other thing, as we already mentioned, I think before too, which I hate in a lot of movies, is the movie tactic of showing you quick glimpses of the thing you already saw an hour ago in the movie when something happens later to make sure you understand. See, that's the thing from earlier in the movie. It's like, I know, I'm not an idiot. I get that. But every time she sees something from the tape, we see the tape again. Mm-hmm. The The level of stupidity they're assuming in laying out the story, again, I'm not necessarily saying it's unwarranted. I'm saying it's unfortunate and it's certainly aggravating when you see how well the story can be told without any of that. It's frustrating in particular to know that they have assumptions about the viewers. Whether they're right or wrong, I don't know. You should never be making a movie based on what you think the viewers need in order to understand it. You should be telling the story. If you have a story, you lay it out, you tell the story, and then let the viewers interpret it. And if they're not getting it, then they're not getting it. Maybe you show it to a test audience and then you realize they need a little something else to pull them along. Or maybe you decide, I'm not going to go back and change anything because this is the story that I want to tell. But whenever your story starts getting adapted and changed and stretched and edited based on what you think someone needs in order to be able to follow it, and especially when you go with the dumbest someone that you can think of, it really does a disservice to your storytelling. It's also a striking difference that I can't think of much of anything in the original where I felt the characters were falling into the old horror trap of doing anything that was all that stupid or making mm. bad decisions. They did do the thing at the end where they just decide they're going to smash into that cabin that's, you know, a privately owned establishment. But okay, they're desperate at the end there. It's not like they're dumb to do it. They're just deciding it's worth it to save their lives. And they've decided they have to empty the well as well. So yeah. they're, they're very determined, but they go with all the supplies they need, buckets, ropes, yes. everything. But, but the characters in this make tons of stupid decisions, not least her deciding she's just going to wander into someone's private home, stay there for a while, watch a tape, and then be shocked when, lo and behold, he shows up to find her. And did we mention the fact how much we like the characters in the original and how, in stark contrast, you instantly dislike her in this movie? She is an unpleasant person. The kid, oh, we'll talk about the kid in a minute. Oy, oy. Noah, the ex, who you referred to as Rent-A-Center, Luke Wilson. <laughs> um, of course, you also referred to the movie as How Green Was My Movie. That was another good one. He's perhaps the most likable of the three of them, but really... You never get any emotional connection. I also noted, like, right at the very beginning, she's very dismissive of a teacher. 
It doesn't help that the teacher's black either, so it almost gives you the subtextual vibe of she seems very dismissive of a black woman in a position of authority. It's like, this is not a way to get us to like this person. And unlike the other one, who seemed like a competent reporter, Naomi Watts very much reads like actress thinking this is how reporters behave. Um, yeah, like including like insulting her boss while shoveling yogurt into her mouth. Like who decided in this scene, I'm going to want you to say something mean and then put a big old spoonful of yogurt right there in your gob. By the way, I feel like Verbinski was spending most of this movie trying to make another movie. He was like, oh, I'll do the ring. But then he decides he's going to do there's some stuff in this. that's like Amityville. There's a shot that's very evil dead. Uh, all kind of stuff city of the living dead one of the movies we talked about last time that we haven't gotten to yet a Fulci movie there's there's a thing in this it's like that there's a lot of reference rear window there's an entire sequence for no reason that suddenly is rear window and there's no real except to but say the only reason is that it's punching you in the face with right. the message right we talked about how the message is so elegantly done in the original in this one they very much want you to know media and television are consuming us everybody's watching tv one character says, you live on an island, you catch a cold, it's everybody's cold. Oh, so in other words, it's viral, it spreads. Brian Cox's character, who was the husband of the woman who's the mother of Samara, we still don't, in this one it's even more complicated, the whole family relationship. He talks about how the reporters have been spreading tragedy like sickness. They're just trying so hard to get all this across. And then, I just wanted to mention one homage thing I really liked before we turn to the kid. <laughs> early in the movie when she does a bit where she sits on the floor with a bunch of print archives in a room filled with books and like books and newspapers i like that shot because it was straight out of all the president's men which is one of my favorite non-horror movie well it's a horror movie lo and behold about an hour later we get the thing where she shows up on the island and meets this woman who's the island's doctor and there was a sort of ethereal kind of she doesn't quite want to talk, but she's talking and she's looking past you as she's looking toward you kind of demeanor to this woman. I thought, God, she looks familiar. And it's Jane Alexander, the woman who plays Judy Hoback Miller and all the president's men who does that wonderful scene where they come to her house to get her to tell them about the creep list and G. Gordon Liddy, and she doesn't want to talk to them. And Hoffman keeps asking for cups of coffee and gets her to tell them everything. It's like all of a sudden I raise, of course. He is doing all the president's men. He wants to be making all the president's men so much, he hired Jane Alexander to show up and be in his movie. But then we have the kid. Mm -hmm. And we've talked in the past about how much we love Burial Ground, which features the much older actor Peter Bark playing what's supposed to be an 11-year-old kid. David Dorfman was a kid, but this is the most Peter Barkiest kid I've ever seen. He's the kid that they wish Peter Bark actually was. This kid is one of the creepiest, most unsettling kids in a movie I've ever seen. He calls her mother by her name. He calls her Rachel. He's got like dark rings around his eyes. He lays out her clothes for her. It's like he's a tiny husband. Yeah, while he's doing his tie in the mirror. He's standing on a chair, putting on his tie. His mom's running around in her underpants saying, where's my dress? And she walks out and it's laid across the couch with her shoes in her purse, like right there with it, like he's assembled it for her. He doesn't quite get the backstory of psychic ability like in the original, but he's kind of got it and he's talking to Samara mm -hmm. and he kind of provides the one 
chilling beat I like at the end, right before the TV bit, where she tells him, oh, it's all okay, because we let her go. And he looks at her like, what are you talking about? You let her go. You weren't supposed to do that. And it's like, maybe you should have told her that first. If you have a vision that you think is relevant to the group, perhaps you should share it with the group, especially when you are like nine years old and can't yourself drive to go stop them from finding the well in the cabin. You also mentioned that this definitely feels like, and I agree, they were trying to make him like a Haley Joel Osment, Sixth Sense kind of thing, except that, as you pointed out, he's not lovable or sympathetic. And I agree. In the original, they want you to truly just feel like this kid and this mother are making the best of what they've got and that he's very smart and independent and that's a good thing. In this one, it feels like she's a horrible person and because of that, her child is a friggin' creep. It's like by virtue of not being around and he is preternaturally smart. I mean, they have that. You've got a a very short appearance of Sarah Rue in there as his babysitter who is saying like, yeah, I went in to tell him that it was time for bed, but he'd already put himself into bed. And then he read me a bedtime story. Like he's the unchildlike child, which is never a good sign. He's creepy in a way that does not instill any confidence in you. And he's creepy in a way where if this movie were made 10 years later than it was, it probably would have ended with her throwing him down the well because he was, as it turns out, the result of some kind of unholy alliance and he's the problem. I'd be fine with that. It's also worth noting, whether intentional or not, that this also represents part of a shift thematically. We talked about fathers being the recurring echo in the original. In this one, it's very much about mothers. And if Naomi Watts' character, again, whether intentional or not, is coming across to us as a bad mother, as someone who's not doing a good job, who's neglected him in favor of her career, it's also made clear in this one, it's the mother that kills Samara in this one, not the father or adopted father or whatever. There's also a juxtaposition when... Noah is very ineptly trying to get the psychiatric hospital records of, um, in this case, Anna, who's the, I guess, mother figure who may or may not also be slightly psychic or is having visions given to her by her daughter. So not exactly psychic, but he's going through her records and it's just this brief glimpse of a sheet of paper where it lists her health history and it lists all of her miscarriages. It's just a whole list of all these times she tried to have a baby and ultimately didn't. And there's even a beat later where her husband, absolutely insane at this point, Brian Cox, and kind of magnificently so. He's like the only person in this movie who's really acting his face off. Well, because he's a great actor. He's amazing. And You think he's going to be a threat and then it turns out he's really just trying to kill himself. He's he's just over it. He's so over it at this point. He kind of says that like she so desperately wanted to be a mother and you even get a beat from the doctor saying, you know, sometimes it's just not meant to be. And you get this feeling of she was someone who wanted a child so badly that she willed it to happen by any means necessary, which ultimately is what resulted in this darkness that then was like destroying her, eating her alive, killing all her horses, destroying her life and her livelihood. 
And she thought, oh, crap, this is not what I wanted. And basically suffocated her and threw her down a well. And on the flip side of that coin, you get Naomi Watts, who, as Rachel Keller, I don't get any impression she ever wanted a kid. I get this impression that she had the kid not intentionally and is sort of trying to find a way to pretend he doesn't exist most of the time right down to the fact that he doesn't even call her mother i'm i'm sure that i i feel like i may not be giving them enough credit in writing it by the way aaron kruger our screenwriter remember him this is the aaron kruger show as it turns out that's another thing we're apparently now doing on the show forever (laughs) i'm not sure what else he did but i guess next episode it's another aaron kruger film I'm not sure to what extent this was conscious or if it just happens, but it feels like that's there, this idea that, you know, was it intentional to give this idea that she's a reluctant parent. And in a sense, you could argue this one has a theme of finding a connection again to your child through the realization of how horribly awry it can go to the extent, like the greatest crime of all, someone that would kill their own child And what's the image we end on in this movie? Her holding his hand and guiding him to save him by making the copy of the tape. An ending very different from the original, where we see them doing it. And it's the two of them working together and her touching him in a way that, i just thinking of this as we're talking, in a way maybe finally brings her to a level of being his mother that she isn't at the beginning of the film. And also because he's so naturally smart and creepy as he's sitting there he also gets to be the one that turns to her and says like this is never gonna stop is it and she kind of gives him this look like yeah but you'll be fine that same place that i read the bit about how they said in the original she turns to her father at the Mm -hmm. end made the comment that in the american version we don't find out who they're going to deal with get it give it to next that it's going to be random perhaps But also they say it demonstrates uh, a reflection of American individualism, that the importance is not on the group or the family, but just about saving themselves at all costs, which I can see. I think the, the idea that maybe this one has this arc of her finding her sense of motherhood makes sense, especially like in contrast to this woman who was so hell bent on being a mother that she created pure evil in doing it. I mean, we talked about like how such... A movie about father figures in the original and maybe that does a disservice to her in not really showing like how much of that is about motherhood and her trying to do what's best for her son and also trying to do what's best for her sister who's just now lost her child the real difference really when you're looking at the tale of two mothers here is that in the original she just decides to do it she hears the kids talking she had done some interviews someone in her office said oh i got the name of the school where the other kids went and then she saw a memorial at her sister's house for the funeral that was from students at that school and realized there's some connection and just went with it in the remake her sister is begging her to investigate it saying this is what you do you look into things she wasn't inclined to look into it she didn't care 
she wasn't going to look any further into it. She was just going to say, well, sometimes these things happen and move on with her life. And there's a difference too in how the characters interact with the teenagers. In the original, she just speaks to them warmly and in a friendly way and just kind of starts pulling conversation from them of like what tragedies these are, pulling into them. And in the remake, Naomi Watts goes out there, says, so what's with all these dead kids, huh? And then lights her cigarette off of one of the teenagers lit cigarette butts and just inserts herself into their conversation. Even at the end of this movie, I'm not sure that I like her character or even care that she's going on. In a sense, because her kid is so creepy, I'm almost like, you know what? Maybe just don't make the copy. Let it end. Just let it end. Let it end here. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblitovsky, that's nblit of sky, and Arnold at Doctor of the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Ring from 1998, yes, and The Ring from 2002. Uh, well, maybe, I don't know. Ghouls in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. 